reading at verse 28 down to verse 44. Let's hear now the word of God. After he, that is Jesus, after he had said these things, he was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he approached Bethphage and Bethany near the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village ahead of you. There, as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? They said the Lord has need of it. They brought it to Jesus and threw, excuse me, and they threw their coats on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. As soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Amen. Now, as I mentioned a moment ago, this is the section that is commonly called the triumphal entry, the triumphal entry. Now, this is what we might call the beginning of the end in the life of Jesus Christ's earthly ministry. Why do I say that? From this point to the end of the gospel, we're going to focus on one week of Jesus' life. Now, you have to understand, boys and girls, that the gospels are not Strictly biographies, the way we think of biographies today. If, for example, somebody becomes famous and they, they may have many people write biographies. I think I heard there were uh, dozens and dozens of biographies that have already been written on Winston Churchill. And a new one has come out this past year. And the first question in the interview is, why another biography on, on Winston Churchill? Um, there, there may, may be, you know, somebody in sports or business. And in a biography, they tend to take the whole of the person's life. But the gospel writers here 
are very intentional in drawing our attention to what is most significant about the life of Jesus Christ. And that is, of course, the last week of Christ as Jesus approaches the cross. So the triumphal entry that is written here in Luke 19 is really the beginning of this final week to which Jesus brings about a climax to his own earthly ministry. Now, why is it here that Jesus reveals himself most fully and seems to embrace the office of kingship? Now, we know since studying the Gospel of Luke that Christ was a certainly king from his, the time he was born. We remember the shepherds when we started this book. Coming and worshiping the king. We remember the Magi bringing king uh, gifts fit for a king. Christ certainly was king all the time. But if you're like me, when I was a new Christian, I often struggled as to why did Jesus not embrace that for much of his life and ministry? Why did Jesus, for example, when the demons were crying out? We know who you are, the Holy One of Israel. He would rebuke them and cause the demons to be quiet. Or why is it when Jesus would heal somebody in private, he would say to that person, now don't tell anybody what I just did for you. Go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering instead. Or why is it that when even the crowds began to try and make him a king because he was feeding the multitudes, Jesus would slip away. I don't know if you've ever wondered that. Why does Jesus for so many years seem not to embrace his kingship? Why does he seem to resist it? I think one of the reasons is because the people he understood had a wrong view of the type of king he was going to be. He was going to be, congregation, a king not of this world. And therefore, his kingship was going to be closely tied to his cross. The kingship of Christ was going to be tied closely to his own crucifixion. Now, when we think of kings, we generally do not think of crucifixion. We do not think of somebody laying down his life on the cross. We think of exaltation. We think of glory. We think of majesty. We think of royalty. We think of pomp and circumstance. We think of royal red carpets. We think of balconies and royal waves. But Jesus' kingship is going to be tied to his humiliation. It's going to be tied to his degradation. It's going to be tied to him going down, not up. He is going to descend Into hell as he goes to the cross, as he hangs on the cross and the wrath of God is poured out on the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's going to cry out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Quoting Psalm 22. And I think what Luke is helping us to see as do the other gospel writers is that the kingship of Christ is tied here to the the final week, the passion week, the week of humiliation, the week of. Betrayal, the week of arrest, of being put on trial, of being crucified, being dead and buried. This is what Christ's kingship means for him. 
And Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you must take up your cross also and follow after me. I want to divide this section into three parts to enable us to digest more easily. Three thoughts. All of them begin with the phrase, Jesus Christ comes to Jerusalem. All three of them will begin with that. Jesus Christ comes to Jerusalem as three things. Number one, the prophet king. P-R-O-P-H-E-T. King, not P-R-O-F-I-T. Not that kind of prophet. The prophet is in prophesying. The prophet king. Number two, he comes as the servant king. And then number three, he comes as the weeping king. The prophet king, the servant king, and the weeping king. Now, when you understand this threefold office, I think you begin to understand why it is that Jesus was not ready to publicly reveal himself to the multitudes as the king. Now, let's look here at the first section. The first section is going to take up a good bit of uh, text here. Verses 28 down to 34. 28 to 34. After he had said these things, I'm reading from verse 28. After he had said these things, he was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. So Jesus is approaching what we today might call the suburbs of Jerusalem. When he approached Bethphage and Bethany near the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village ahead of you. And there, as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. So they're approaching the outer reaches of Jerusalem. And Jesus takes two of his disciples, we're told here. And he says, I want you to go ahead of us because there you're going to find a young colt, a donkey, and it's going to be tied up. And I want you to untie it and I want you to bring it back to me. Now, if anybody asks, why are you doing this? Who, you know, who are you? What are you doing? Uh, you are to say to them, you are to answer them that the Lord has need of it. Now, why is Jesus doing this? Why is why is Jesus doing this? Now, according to your more liberal commentators, Jesus is kind of a good administrator. He's planned ahead and here he's arranged this thing to go on. And now he's sending his disciples to get the donkey that uh, he, uh, you know, ordered, you know, his Uber. Yeah, he called it in on his cell phone and now they're going to get the Uber donkey. OK, no, no. Why is Jesus doing this? Well, Jesus here is showing us he's the prophet King. Jesus has not been in the vicinity at any time, nor is there any record that Jesus sent anybody ahead of these two disciples to arrange all this. This is a part of Jesus' ministry as the king who also is a prophet. This is amazing here. This is extremely rare, too, that you would have a king who is also a prophet as Jesus. And so Jesus here is Telling them something that would happen. And we see this in the Old Testament, don't we? You remember Samuel. It involved a donkey then too, didn't it? Saul has lost his donkey. And he finally meets Samuel. And what does Samuel tell him? Don't worry, Saul. The donkey has been found. The donkey is safe. But the reason 
God allowed that donkey to escape was because he wanted you to meet me and I'm going to make you king. I'm going to pour the oil on your head and you're going to become the king of Israel. And so we see prophecies like that that are being fulfilled in very uh, intimate details. And so Jesus here is acting as a prophet. Now, why? Why? Let me suggest to you that this in itself is to fulfill what the Old Testament said about the Messiah, about the Lord Jesus Christ. That Jesus here is calling for a donkey, not just because he's tired and he wants a ride or anything like that. It is because a lesser known prophet to many of us, Zechariah, but read Zechariah sometime on your own in chapter nine and in verse nine tells us that the, the Messiah who would come in the new covenant would come riding into Jerusalem, mounted on a foal, mounted on the colt of a donkey. And so really what Jesus is doing is he is pointing out to the multitudes who would have known their Bible that he indeed is the king that is expected. Let me just read you from Zechariah 9, 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Now, why are they to rejoice? Why is why is Jerusalem supposed to rejoice? Rejoice. He says, shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble, mounted on a donkey, even a colt, the foal of a donkey. And Christ here is now beginning to publicly announce his kingship, I would argue. That's the significance of it. Whereas formally, Jesus is saying, don't tell anybody. Anybody ask how you got healed? Don't tell them. Demons, you be quiet. Quit shouting out. We know you're the son of God, the holy one of Israel. He doesn't. uh, Now Jesus is saying, "Okay, the time has come to tell the world that I am the king that the prophets long expected. But Jesus has to let them know that this kingdom is not going to manifest itself with earthly and worldly and sinful expectations. This kingdom will be a holy kingdom. It is Jehovah's kingdom. It is a kingdom from above. It is a kingdom of righteousness. And so the prophet king is going to come in fulfillment to prophecy. He is going to come and he is coming on the town even as the Old Testament had predicted. Now, what are we to make of this today? What does this mean for us as Christians today? Let me suggest a couple things. First of all, Jesus, I would argue, continues as the prophet king today. He is, in fact, we could say prophet, priest and king today. And he reigns in heaven. Now, boys and girls, young children, I want you to understand Jesus is king and he has begun to reign. After he was raised from the dead, Jesus went up to heaven and he reigns with God the Father. You need to understand that. He's not here on earth and his kingdom is not of this world. But just because you can't see him with your physical eye yet, 
does not mean his kingdom is not real. His kingdom is very real. Sometimes people make the mistake. They think that because something is spiritual, it is therefore not real. Gnosticism is still alive and well in the 21st century. Gnosticism, as you remember, denies the material world. The material is bad. Um, and, and sometimes people uh, don't really believe uh, that the kingdom is present. Christ is a king and he is reigning, but he's a prophet king. Now, here's what it means, I think, for you and me. As the prophet king, Christ does what? He gives the spirit, the spirit of the prophets. How did the prophets of the Old Testament prophesy? How did Christ prophesy? By the spirit. In the spirit. And what does Jesus do as the prophet king? He gives his people the spirit. Now the spirit is not contained simply to the prophets and to the priests and to the king. But now we are told in the New Testament, you are a kingdom of priests. Making sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving unto God. You are a prophetic kingdom now in that, that the word has been given to you, written in the Bible. That the prophet king continue in the, in the, continues in the 21st century to reign and rule in this fallen world by way of his spirit through his word. He gives this spirit to you so that you can understand. First of all, he gives you the word which was inspired by the spirit. Then he gives you the spirit who inspired the word and the spirit indwells within you and the spirit illuminates your understanding so that when you read the Bible, you are able to read it with some spiritual apprehension or comprehension. You can understand the significance and the meaning of the text and you are not blind as to what God is saying in his word because he has given you the ability to understand. It's not because you're smarter. It's not because we're more clever. It's not because we're wiser. It's because God has given his church the spirit. The prophet king has poured out the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the ministry of the third person of the Holy Trinity. And he brings that word and gives you the power that you need, the spiritual power you need from above to hear the word. I was just talking with somebody and, and I had asked, how did you come to Christ? I came to Christ reading the Bible. I just began to read the Bible. And what happened? Well, the Holy Spirit begins to work on a person. And as they read the Bible, they begin to see the truth of the Bible. They begin to see the reality that Jesus is who he says he is in the word. And they do not get weird views of who Jesus is. They don't view him as some mere political figure or some kind of revolutionary or some kind of you know, early version of a 60s hippie. They see him as the God man who lays down his life on the cross and dies for the sins of his people and is raised bodily from the dead on the third day. And, and they, they are given that as a gift. It's a gift. So recognize that. If, if you are a Christian, you are a Christian because of the reign of Christ, the prophetic king who's given you the spirit, who has brought you to himself by his spirit. No, none of us can boast that it was our own doing that brought us to Christ. It was 
Only the grace of God in Jesus Christ that enabled us to know him. And so this idea of the prophet king is an important one even today. Number two, by way of application here. What else does it mean for Jesus as the prophet king? What's the significance for us today? Well, let me suggest this. If Jesus, who is the prophet king, can predict little things such as where a donkey will be and what the reaction of others will be when they begin to untie the donkey and what they're supposed to say and that that saying will satisfy them. That's the amazing thing, too, is that they're saying, what are you doing? And they're saying, the Lord has needed this. Oh, okay. You know, instead of saying, who are you? You know, (laughs) how do I know who you are? You know, but it seems to work. Well, if Jesus can predict the the, the minutiae, And he is king of the universe and he governs all the details of our life as one who is reigning with the father. Then also he's in control of the details of your life. And the very details of your life are important to him. They're ordained by him. They're controlled by him. If if God knows Even when a little bird, a sparrow falls from the tree, he knows the details of your own sufferings. He knows the details of your own heartaches and sighs and sufferings and sorrows. And he controls all of them for your ultimate good and final happiness. That is his aim, that you would be infinitely happy, that you would be infinitely holy, that you would enter into that eternal felicity, that you would skip like calves and know what it is to have full communion with God and in a body that serves God unreservedly with a soul that is completely holy now and purified and to be able to serve God without any fear that you will reject him and and turn away from him or sin against him ever again. Jesus is making certain that all the details of Romans 8:28 are working together for our ultimate good. Everything is happening according to his plan. He is the king who controls it all. He's the prophet who knows the details of the future. And we can trust him. We can put your, you can put your confidence. If you have never come to Jesus Christ, I want you to see here's another reason yet to come to Jesus Christ as your savior. Because there is nobody else who is a prophet like this man. There's nobody else who's a king like this man. And as we're going to see later, there is going to be no one who is a priest. Like this man, no earthly priest can do what Jesus is going to do. Jesus is going to take away the sins of his people. Jesus is going to act as a perfect substitute for sinners. And and Jesus is going to completely satisfy the demands of God's law in a way that we cannot do. Therefore, Jesus is unique. There is. The Bible says no other name under heaven by which men may be saved. It is it is a unique name. That word unique, I know, is overused in our culture today. This is something unique when you listen to what it is. and You're like, well, that's not really unique. It's just another version of that. But Jesus truly is unique. There is no one like him. There is no other name that can save. Only the name of Christ. There's no other way to the Father but through Jesus Christ. He is the definitive article. The way. The truth. The life. He is the resurrection. Every other guru, I don't want to say the word other, but every guru out there 
is going to die and after they are dead, they will stay in the grave until Jesus raises them up from the grave. Only Christ has been raised from the dead. Christ is unique, truly. Buddha has not been raised. Muhammad has not been raised from the dead, but Jesus has been bodily raised, not simply raised in their consciousness, raised in their thinking, raised in some kind of nebulous spiritual way. That's what the liberals all say. No, you don't give your life because Jesus was raised that way. You give your life to lions and to Nero's gardens because Jesus has been bodily raised and made an appearance unto men over 40 days. The conspiracy would fall apart if Jesus had only been raised in their consciousness. One of the twelve would have cracked. And probably more than that. One of the illustrations I love that Chuck Colson gives in one of his books. Remember Chuck Colson? He was involved in Watergate. And when everything was going south for the Nixon administration and Watergate was unraveling, it quickly became apparent that it was every man for himself. Every man began looking out for his own interests. So long as they didn't go to jail. Many of them began to sing. Except for Gordon Liddy. He held out. <laughs> Gordon Liddy wouldn't talk. But Colson's point was it took a lot less than death for the conspiracy to break. It only took a, 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 a prosecutor, a general, an attorney's general, the threat of a potential time in jail. And, and people were, were willing to spill the beans. And here we have people who are committed unto death that Jesus is really alive and has been bodily raised from the dead. And not one disciple breaks away from that. Christ is truly unique. I got to keep moving here. He is secondly also not only the prophet king, he is the servant king. Look at verse 35 with me and following verse 35. They brought it to Jesus and they threw their coats on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. As soon as he was approaching Near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. You know, one of the things that stood out to me about this scene is uh, what we might today in colloquial language call this really small time. When you, when you think about kings and you think about, you know, the jubilee celebration of the Queen of England and all the pageantry that went into that. Or you, even you read about, you know, Solomon, something in, like in Psalm 45 where you read about the wedding of Solomon and, and its description here. You really realize this is pretty podunk. They get a fall, and what do they do? They, they take their outer garment, and they put it on the beasts, 
and they throw their coats in the road. It's not exactly the, the red carpet of Hollywood, is it? This isn't exactly, you know, the Academy Awards stepping out of the limo and and having all the paparazzi take the pictures as they go in in their fine outfits. This is this is quite modest, isn't it? This is not a, a beast of triumph by any means. This is not some great white stallion. Now, that picture is given in Revelation. The glory and the exaltation of Christ is coming. But we have to understand that, the, that Christ as a king is coming in humiliation. This is small stuff. This is humble. This is a man seated on a foal of a donkey with people's garments draped over it and some and some coats thrown in the road. And that's it. And I think it speaks to the nature of Christ's kingdom. It is a serving kingdom. It is a ministry kingdom. It's not a kingdom that gains by way of violence, by way of military conquest. It's a kingdom that comes not with pomp and circumstance, not with badges of royalty. This is a kingdom that's very ordinary. It's a kingdom full of servants. It's a kingdom full of humility and humiliation. It's a kingdom that seeks to deny itself. Here he is, one who is fully God in man. He is fully God and truly man. He's riding on an animal that he and his divine nature made. And he is the first man to ride on that little creature. This little colt is carrying the God man. He, he, you know, this is not even when you think about the visions that the prophet saw, this is. Not even really comparable to even what the prophets saw. You know, we think about Ezekiel and those opening chapters are so weird, aren't they? It almost seems like Ezekiel's like tripping or something. He, he's seeing these strange, angelic creatures and he's seeing uh, a being that has is glowing and bronze and on fire and wheel within wheel. And these creatures have eyes all over. Them. And it's a sense of of. A glory and holiness and strange otherness. And you think about Isaiah in Isaiah 6. And what does Isaiah see? He sees the king lifted up. And there you see the exaltation and the royalty. And the train of his robe fills the entire temple. And here comes Jesus. On a donkey with dirty disciple coats on it. It is God coming down, isn't it? It is God coming to serve. It is, we're going to see this in the upper room when, when Jesus goes lower even further than this picture. He's going to get on his knees and he's going to wash the feet of those disciples. He's going to gird himself with a towel and a basin. And he's going to serve them as a king and he's going to tell his disciples what I have done unto you. You do for one another. 
Remember, they're still arguing. Who of them is the greatest? They're still arguing which of the disciples is the best. And Peter's saying, it's me. Because, I, you know, one day I'm going to have people in Rome telling the world it's me. <laughs> and John's saying, no, no, it's me. I'm the best. Because I get to lay my head on him, on his chest at dinner. I'm his best bud. It's me. And Jesus says it's the one who's the servant. You want to be great in the kingdom? You have to become like me, Jesus says. You have to go down. You have to serve. You have to be willing to ride the donkey. It's not a chariot. It's not a Rolls Royce. It's not a limo. It's not a jet plane. It's a donkey. Field animal. Almost every peasant in the Middle East had one. That's all it is. And the king of the universe has come down and said, this is my kingdom. This is what my kingdom looks like in this fallen world. Now, there is a glory to the kingdom. There is a majesty to the kingdom. And, but it's a majesty that's going to make Solomon's glory pale in significance. It's, it, the mansions of this world are going to look nothing like the mansion you're getting. But you have to ride the donkey first. And the crowd, they begin to praise God here. They, they recite, quote, Psalm 118, verse 26. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now, the Pharisees don't like this because what is Christ doing? Well, he's announcing himself as the Messiah, isn't he? He's announcing himself as the king. And the, and the Pharisees don't like this. And they'd say, silence your disciples. Tell them to be quiet. Rebuke them. They shouldn't be saying this. And Jesus says, if they don't, the rocks are going to cry out. Because this is who I am. One final part. And I've got to make this shorter. Verse 41 to 44, the weeping king. The prophet king, the servant king. Finally, the weeping king. Jesus approaches the city and finally he sees uh, Jerusalem. And he looks out over it. And he says, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which made for peace. But they have been hidden from your eyes. Now, what is Jesus saying there? Jesus is saying, here's the city, supposedly the city of Zion, the city of God, the city where the temple is. The city where God's name dwells, and yet what? There is a spiritual blindness to this religious people. Because he is the king and they don't see him as they ought. They don't recognize him. Just as John says in his prologue, that Jesus is the light of the world, but the darkness did not comprehend it. The darkness didn't understand it. And this is why in a week Jesus will be hanging on a cross. Because they will ultimately reject who Jesus is, and they will right now, while praising him some, they will call for his crucifixion later. 
And Jesus is saying, if you, a city, only knew that which made for peace, if you only knew the way of reconciliation, which is faith in Christ. And so I, in Jesus name here, would preach to you this morning. Do you know the the way, the things which make for peace today? The things which make for peace today are the things which made for peace in Jesus's day, namely faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is how you have peace with God. God has an enmity against you, against man by nature because of our sin. But God is willing to be reconciled in Jesus Christ with sinners. But you must repent. You must believe on Christ. You must believe that Christ is the propitiation, the one who satisfies the demands of God, the demands of justice. These are the terms for peace. God is giving you terms. He's offering peace to you. But you have to believe in the conditions. And what are the conditions? The conditions are Christ. Believe on Christ. Believe he is the God man. Believe he died on the cross for you. Believe that he loved you and gave himself for you. Believe that he was raised from the dead for you. Believe on him. Trust his word. Obey him. Turn from your sin. Turn from your worldliness. Turn from your love of this idolatrous world. Turn and believe. And, it, and God will credit to you as righteousness. He will declare you righteous in his sight if you will believe in him. If you will believe in the son. But the, the, the trouble is that Jerusalem here is unbelieving. <coughs> and so Jesus weeps. We are told in verse 41, he saw the city and he wept over. And of course, Luke has a bit shorter version than Matthew. In Matthew's account, you'll remember that Jesus speaks of the words comparing himself to as a mother hen who longed to gather her chicks. And I never really knew this until reading the commentaries. Because I didn't grow up on a farm. I grew up in the suburbs and I didn't know anything about chickens and hens. And uh, but apparently that a hen, whenever a hawk comes circling by, the mama bird will gather up her little chicks and put them under her wings to protect them from the hawk that's looking for dinner. And what Jesus is saying here is he longed to gather up God's people. He longed to gather up the people of Jerusalem under his wings of protection. But they were they reject him. They're unwilling. And this is what grieves Jesus Christ. In many ways, we see Jesus, I think, fulfilling the ministry of Jeremiah. You know, boys and girls, we speak of Jeremiah as the weeping prophet, right? Jeremiah is sad. Why is Jeremiah always sad? Because the people never listen to Jeremiah. Jeremiah has a, a ministry of futility. It's one of the worst callings in the history of the ministry. Because he's going to preach them into exile. He's going to preach. And God is going to use his preaching to harden their hearts instead of soften their hearts. Had to be one of the most discouraging ministries ever. But in, in some ways, Jesus is even worse. Because now you have him of whom Jeremiah spoke. Preaching to the people and the people are rejecting him. And so what does he do? Well, he tells them that judgment is coming against Jerusalem. 
Remember, this is what astounded. We'll get to this later, too, when we get to Luke 21. This is what astounded the disciples. But note here, verse 43, this is not talking about the second coming now in these next two verses. This is coming within this generation. Jesus says, for the days will come upon you. He's speaking to that generation when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side and they will level you to the ground. Now, what is he talking about? He's talking about the Roman army coming within that generation and they will and they did historically in 70 A.D., Surround Jerusalem and they destroyed Jerusalem. They destroyed the temple and the temple has never been rebuilt in these last 2000 years. And, and my belief is it'll never be rebuilt because Christ is the fulfillment of the temple. We don't need the temple anymore. The new temple is going to be coming from Jerusalem above. And I just think the dispensationalists are just completely wrong when they think, we, you know, we need to rebuild the temple in Israel. Why? To go back to typological sacrifices of goats and bulls? No. What a horrible theology. Backward Christian soldier. <laughs> no. We don't need the temple anymore. God providentially destroyed it. He put a mosque on top of it just to make certain it's never going to be rebuilt. World War III is going to break out before that temple is reconstructed. Jesus here is saying, I'm... It, the Jerusalem, he weeps over this because of the hardness of their hearts. They're going to be destroyed. He says they will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave you in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. You didn't recognize who I was as the son of God in your midst and God will visit judgment on you. Now, let me tell you this, friends, because I need to close and make this application. There is, a, I think, a sense in which the destruction of Jerusalem prophesied here by Jesus in verse 43 and 44. Is small stuff compared to the final judgment when Christ comes. Because maybe some of you winced when I said this doesn't apply to the second coming. It's the meaning of these words do not apply to the second coming, but the application does. And make that clear. One meaning, many applications. And the application is if this judgment of which Jesus prophesied was bad, and historians tell us it was horrible. And you, you can read about it even from secular historians of what happened at Jerusalem in 70 AD when Titus and the army showed up. It is we, we are told it is nothing compared to what will come when God closes the door of the gospel on this world. And brings the final judgment. People in that day, we are told, will ask for mountains to fall on them. People will ask for hills to cover them from the presence of. Of the Lamb, John the Apostle tells us in the book of Revelation. Those who have spent 70, 80 plus years rejecting Christ, when they see him whom they have pierced, they will mourn. And they will want any disaster 
rather than having to face God face to face as a sinner, unreconciled and impenitent. Because all that waits now will be the final verdict and then the everlasting fire where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, where the worm is never satisfied and where there will never be any hope of crossing from there to paradise. Let's pray together. Father, we...